Joining us on this episode is a man that has worked 14 Baseball Canada National Championships in nine different provinces, an umpire that has worked multiple international events on two different continents, and a guy that is rumored to have challenged Vin Scully to a baseball statistics competition and won Elmer Jerkovitz. Topics we cover are growing up and working baseball in Regina and Saskatchewan, 40 years in the Western Canadian Baseball League, and umpiring in Japan. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming! Interesting baseball facts. Visiting teams wear, at least mostly, gray uniforms so fans can easily distinguish between the visiting team and the home team. This tradition dates back to the late 1800s when traveling teams did not have time to launder their uniform and consequently wore gray to hide the dirt. Now, it's a little bit more difficult for an umpire to hide the dirt in their uniform, but the easiest way is avoid wearing powder blue. Pack an extra black jersey. But anyways, welcome to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Now, before we get going on this episode, let's do a quick recap of what's gone on over the past couple of weeks. Superclinic.ca has ramped up and has concluded. That's right. Last Superclinic was offered for the 2021 baseball season in Baseball Canada. And what a clinic it was. Let's reference Boots and 30. A big shout out to Steve Butang for honoring his promise to shave his facial hair in support of Ums Care. Now, if memory serves me correctly, $2,265 Canadian was raised for Ums Care. And while Steve sacrificed his facial hair, the real congratulation goes out to all the participants who donated to this worthwhile cause. Now, are you still interested in contributing to this cause? Because you can. Thanks to Boots and 30 guest Rob Allen and Major League umpire Stu Shearwater, they have combined to do a further fundraiser to help support the cause. Now, Rob and his wife are fantastic craftspeople. They build custom furniture and apparently since the start of the pandemic have building baseball board games. They can't keep them in stock and they're flying off the shelf. Now, their company is called Twisted Grain. You can find them on Facebook at The Twisted Grain. Now, the reason why I'm promoting them is because what they have done is they've built this beautiful home plate and they've put number 85 in it. Stu, another previous guest here in the Leading Edge and Major League umpire wearing 85, has graciously agreed to autograph said home plate and will provide it to the highest bidder in a silent auction. Now, if this is something that you're interested in getting into, it's rather simple. You're simply going to email Steve Butang with your bid. Now, I'm going to give you his email address and I'm going to spell it out for you in the phonetic alphabet. And you can also find it in our show description. So his email is S Sierra B Bravo O Oscar U Uniform T, Tango, A, Alpha, N, November, G, Golf, 
at S Sierra H Hotel A Alpha W Whiskey dot C Charlie A Alpha. Yes, that's right. His email is sbutang at shaw.ca. Again, check it out in the show description. Now, I'm sorry, but not sorry for putting you through that. The reason being is prior to the pandemic, I was doing training with hopes of becoming a pilot. Just completed my ground school and was about to begin in flight training until everything was suspended. And in all fairness, up until now, I hadn't had the chance to use the phonetic alphabet. Let's just say after a couple thousand dollars of tuition and books and stuff, I've finally been able to use something I learned there. So thanks for being my guinea pigs. How'd I make out? Leave us a comment in the show description or of course on Facebook, Leading Edge Umpire Stories. Now, before we get this episode off and rolling, let's reflect back on the last episode where we brought on Baseball Nova Scotia president, an umpire that's worked multiple international events, and a guy that only believes in eating the cream part of an Oreo cookie, Andrew Downs. If you tuned in, this is what you got. And if you haven't listened yet, well, this is what you're missing. I was a pretty good house league player. I was a catcher, dabbled a little bit first base. I got the pitch when we were uh, way up or way behind, more often way behind. You know, t- uh, talking about umpire school. Anyway, next thing I know, I'm off to uh, Joe Brinkman Umpire School in uh, Cocoa, Florida. I went there in uh, 1998. I re- remember reading an old book, I think it was Derwood Merrill's book or, or one of those guys that, or Ken Kaiser, basically they had to check the obituaries every day to see if they were going to get hired. The senior all Newfoundland uh, plate assignment, and to me that stands out as probably one of the uh, one of my favorite moments of umpiring all, in my career. One of my favorite events was... Uh, I got to work the Canada Games in Sherbrooke, Quebec. And as an umpire, you only get to work that once. If you're ever fortunate enough to be considered or be awarded that event, jump on it, take it. What a fantastic experience. I've got to see this country, every province of this country, through baseball. Not a lot of people get an opportunity to do that. And I've been very fortunate to, to see very nice parts of this country that I didn't even know existed. Well, Andrew, we're glad that you've had the opportunity to see some fantastic parts of this country that you didn't know existed working within the Baseball Canada Umpire Program. As we say, isn't that a perk, going to a national championship, representing your province and your country, doing what you love, but also getting the opportunity to see things that you never thought you would see? As I like to say to a lot of people, get involved. You never know where it's going to take you. So if you missed that episode, check it out. Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Facebook, YouTube. Tune in, Amazon Alexa, anywhere you pod, you check it out. Leading Edge Umpire Stories, it should be there. Now, of course, one more plug before we get going. Facebook, Leading Edge Umpire Stories. Check us out. Please share us. Get the word out. Share some of the fantastic stories from umpires right across this beautiful country we call Canada because there's been some fantastic stories and we're looking to bring you more and we would love to get the voice out. Again, Leading Edge Umpire Stories. Check it out on Facebook. Now, without further ado, let's get to this episode. Leading Edge Umpire Entertainment is proud to bring on an umpire close to half a century of experience, has worked 14 Baseball Canada National Championships in nine different provinces, only missing Farewell to Nova Scotia, the seabound coast and is once rumored to have eaten a wine cap, thinking it was a cashew, Elmer Jerkovitz. Elmer, welcome to The Leading Edge. Hey, Phil. 
Thanks for having me. Elmer, it's always a pleasure to have on a fellow umpire and a senior guy like yourself that's been around the circuit for a few years. Really look forward to our discussion today. First thing we like to do before we get going is really give the guest the opportunity to defend themselves as a ball player in their day. So, Elmer, got to ask you, did you play baseball? I did for a few years. Started as a five-year-old playing a little bit of what we called scrub and pickup games in the schoolyard. And when I was eight, I started playing organized ball until my last year of under U13. Really enjoyed it. It just uh, didn't work out. What position did you play? I wanted to be a third baseman, and I tried that and tried first base and excelled in center field. Yeah, well, Vladimir Guerrero wants to play a third base too, but it looks like he's excelling at first base. Were you a natural out there in center field, Devon White style? As a U13, I could track down a lot of fly balls, and I could I could throw to the plate from the fence. I was about the only guy in the league that could do that, and I think that's why they kept me there in center field and told me to forget about third base. Well, baseball is a, is a team sport. you got to make sure that the best player is at every position, so if you're the best player in the field that can play center field, you got to play it. That's, that's exactly it. And I loved it. I actually loved throwing the ball and trying to nail guys advancing. I got to say, I played right field growing up. and Some people will disagree with me, but I know I had a nickname. I was called the Cannon. That was one of my funnest things to do was, was hammering guys the ba- at the bases and getting those outs. I used to yell at guys at first base, you know what, go to third. If this ball is hit to me, go to third. You know what, they bit every once in a while and I made sure to <laughs> knock them down. I have the appreciation for that outfield assist gotta love it did you ever get the opportunity to play in any provincial or big championships not really i back then it was a little bit different setup um, we had four leagues in regina and you had to win your league and then go to the four league play down and uh, my team made it to the city final we lost there was a separate sask baseball play down we never advanced in that I did happen to play in the city playdown against a named individual, Doug Wickenizer, who ended up being a a very good hockey player and was an excellent left-handed pitcher. He could strike out five guys in an inning. The sad part was the catchers couldn't catch the the balls. (laughs) That's how he got his four or five strikeouts in an inning. Gotta love it. Don't give up a hit, but you're giving up lots of runs. That's exactly it. Okay, I guess we're going to move on then. When did you start umpiring? I started in 1976. I had plans to play ball that summer. As a 13-year-old, I was playing hockey late in the spring in a city championship. It broke my arm. And at that time, if you weren't on a roster by a certain time, there was no ability to add onto a roster past the cutoff. By the time I got my cast off, the teams that I wanted to play on finalized their roster, didn't wait for me. And I was left without a spot to play. Uh, not wanting to give up the game, I decided I would try a few games of umpiring over at Columbus Park uh, in South Regina. I found I really enjoyed it and understood it. Starting 1977, I took umpiring up full-time. And I found it was a good way to uh, stay part of the game and put a few dollars in my pocket. Not lose sight of maybe getting back as a potential player, but the opportunity never came up. Well, sorry to hear that you played in the day before participation, Ribbons, I guess. you either black and white, you're on the team, you're not on the team. But looking back on it, you must say that that was a positive in some regards. Yeah, it, you don't think of those things at that time as, as, as a young individual. You just want to, for me, it was just wanting to be part of the game. When I found that people said to me, you know, you've done a good job, you, you were good out there, kind of gives you a little bit of boost of confidence and you say to yourself, well, I can keep doing this uh, because people are enjoying the work that I do. Uh, I found that it didn't take me long as a 16, 17-year-old to be working full 90-foot base pass games and some men's leagues. 
even got me to the point where I was 18 years old and I started doing the old Sask Major Baseball League. So for me, the progression up the ladder partly was due to my ability, partly was due to the people I knew, and partly was due to the lack of qualified officials in, in the city at that time. Got to ask, Elmer, since you've been in the game a long time, looking back, would you think there's more pressure on officials today or back then? I don't know. And the only reason I say that is because as a younger person, we probably didn't pay attention to the pressure as much. I can remember different times where parents, you know, would make comments from the sidelines. I really didn't care about that. It didn't really affect me. I didn't pay attention to it. I didn't let it rattle me at all. I decided that if I went out there, my job was to be the person in charge if I was the plate umpire. More often than not, the plate umpire back then was the better of the two officials. One summer, I probably did 95% of my games on the plate because my partner didn't want to do the plate. He wasn't a, a strong umpire. He wasn't assertive enough. He wasn't confident enough. I decided then that I would take that and run with it. I didn't really let anybody's comments rattle me. Even coaches, I didn't let them get the best of me because I decided at that time that my job was to be the person who was in charge of the game from the first pitch to the last pitch. And I didn't try to abuse that power. I just tried to run the game as efficiently, as fairly as possible. Well, Elmer, I have two comments to that. First thing is, when you enjoy something, I don't think the pressure is there as much. I would agree with that, yes. You're having a good time and... You're just trying your best and you're trying to get better. And the second thing, I think we've all worked with a partner who might not want to do the plate and not be as strong. And I don't want to name names, but you know what? My buddy, Jeremy Nash, he's like that. I do plates all the time for him. So it's, (laughs) ah, I get where you're coming from. Little disclaimer, Jeremy doesn't mind doing the plate. He's one of those guys that makes sure to show up for the big game. Okay, growing up in Regina, who were some of the guys that really inspired you to get into umpiring? I don't think there was any one individual. I had I mean, my older brother umpired. He would call me and say, we need a guy to do this, or do that. And I would go do it. He knew a gentleman named Don Pankwich. Don also was doing umpiring at that time. And he was involved with the Sask Major League. So the Regina Red Sox were playing in that league at that time before they folded for, for a few years or shut down. 19 years old, and I'm doing the plate in the SAS Major League where most of the players were Saskatchewan-born players. There was uh, the odd import. Those two guys actually gave me a lot of breaks. I don't think I had a role model as such because uh, they treated me as peers. They let me uh, come in. They told me to run the game, do what I felt was necessary, and call my game. And, and so I did what, what was asked of me. That's the beautiful thing about the family of umpiring is that everybody might have their own little style of umpiring. Yes, there's basic mechanics, but that's the nice thing. Everyone runs the game a little bit differently. Looking back at all your years of umpiring in Saskatchewan, where is a great location to work a ball game? You know, there's there's so many of them. I do get a kick out of doing games at Curry Field, partly because that's my main part. I know a lot of people who come to the Red Sox games, for example, and some people might think I do a li- visit a little too much with some of the fans, but the game of baseball is such a neat game to get to know people through. Yes. Um, you know, just a, a simple question about a play can turn into another discussion, can turn into another, and it can create a good friendship. And I really like that. I think that that is the most enjoyable aspect of the game, on the field and off the field. 
I did some games in Saskatoon. I don't mind their fields at all. Karen's field is a little different in terms of the fan setup years ago, yes. but I liked the field because it was very well maintained 15, 20 years ago. Weyburn is really interesting because it's got a small backstop behind the home plate area and the fans are really close. You can see what they're eating when they buy something from the canteen. That's how close they are. It's so, cozy. It's 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 a lot of unique experiences throughout Saskatchewan. And I haven't even thought about or commented about the uh, small towns, many small towns that I umpired back in the 80s and 90s to doing different sports days. Well, since you bring it up, let's segue into it. What is a sports day in Saskatchewan? A sports day in Saskatchewan is on a Saturday or Sunday. It's where different activities go on. Hardball was always one. Slow pitch. Not every town would have softball. There'd be kids games, three-legged races, horseshoes. There's always a beer garden. There's always a canteen. There's some extracurricular activities at the end of the day in most of, most of the towns. And I did, I, I think about 15 different small towns, north and south of Regina, for a number of years where I would go. We'd arrive at 8.15 in the morning, beyond the diamond at 9, five inning games, uh, seven games a day, and two of us would umpire all day. When we first started doing that, we would alternate plate and base each game. Then uh, we figured, why don't we stay on two plates, get 10 innings a plate, 10 innings on base, so we do two, 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 and one. I found that that after so many years, I felt like part of a community. You show up and people would welcome you, they'd ask you how you're doing, They'd give you a good place to park. They'd offer to buy you food. They'd even buy you something at the end of the day. One particular town was my favorite was Bethune. Bethune was always on Canada Day. We always were invited to stay at the end of the day. The town would put on uh, hot dogs and fireworks uh, display. So I helped cook hot dogs on the grill. (laughs) And then I would go out to second base with one of the locals, a gentleman by the name of Dale Almer, who unfortunately just passed away here in in february he had a a little flatbed trailer with sand on it and he'd bring out fireworks and so we'd smoke cigars out at second base and light the fireworks (laughs) and it was it was just the most incredible feeling because they made me feel part of the community even though i didn't live there and we would do this year after year after year and it was a blast i look forward to it every year that's what the game of baseball does. It brings communities together. And communities can be from all shapes and sizes. It doesn't need to be a postal code or a zip code or a telephone number. The community of baseball is large. And you mentioned it earlier, the game really provides people the opportunity to have discussion. I think that's what I like most about the game is that there's action and then we kind of take a breath. And in that moment, we can reflect on what just happened in that auction where you get, where you get hockey where they're screaming right from the puck drop. It's just too much. I don't think my ADD can handle it. Hockey is very continuous, and one action leads into another, which leads into another. And having ref hockey for 40 years, I, I can appreciate that. And baseball is so stop and go, and it just it's so easy to to have one play get out of sight, out of mind, and then the next play picks it up and takes you a different direction. Oh, no question. And then talk about it in baseball. How many times have you heard, forget that pitch, let's move on to the next pitch? Exactly. Now, since we're talking sports days in Saskatchewan, you kind of got me intrigued here. You mentioned a little canteen. I hear that sports days in Saskatchewan over the years have been famous for their pies. Yes, they have. I, I, I know where you're going with this, Phil, because one of my favorite things to do at the end of the day was to go to the canteen and say, what do you got left for pies? 
and they'd look at me and go, well, you worked hard, so you got a full pie, and we'll charge you $2. And it was a homemade pie, apple, banana cream, cherry, didn't matter. I'm taking them home. <laughs> what were you hoping was left? What was your goal? Apple pie or banana cream pie? Those were my favorites back then, and I really look forward to them because they're always made very, very well. That's the great thing about communities coming together for sport is that they get one day a year to show off what they got and they make sure they put on a spread. Let's flip a coin here and let's move on to provincial championships in Saskatchewan. Are there any memorable ones that stick out? I've worked lots, yeah. And, and some of them were some fantastic tournaments. Some of them were a little bit of a struggle. One particular one I remember working was uh, four of us covered a junior provincial in Regina here in, in the mid-90s. On the August long weekend, every day it was 34, 35 degrees. And we had three guys on the field and one guy sitting. It was right around the time uh, Powerade just came out as a product. <laughs> yes. And a gentleman uh, by the name of Lauren Lestel, who uh, from originally from Weyburn, we lost him a few years ago. He took to Powerade like a fish to water. I don't know how he did this, but we'd walk into the dressing room after a game and there'd be a stack of cold ones on the dressing room bench for us and he would kind of hoard them and it would be like prying candy from a kid to try and get him to share them with us we worked hard that weekend because every game was a good game we finished up on the sunday night just drained i think randy sir was another gentleman who did some games and uh i think the fourth guy escapes me it might have been larry schrader I, I, but i don't believe so we had a blast we worked hard and had a lot of fun giving Lauren a hard time about a, a power aid fetish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, you mentioned a name there. You think Larry Schrader was there. I'm just going to put a ad out there. I think this is Larry Schrader count one. I'm just waiting to see how many times Larry's name's mentioned throughout the episode. Well, you know, and and, and it will lots of times. And, and I think Larry was actually in Wawota that weekend because, and, and it was, he was in Wawota because that he phoned me and said that uh, there was a game in Wawota, I think it was a 10 o'clock start, and Regina was playing Carlisle, and Regina wins one game, the championship's over, if Carlisle wins, they got to play another one. And people couldn't umpire, so they asked me to drive to Wawota. So I got up at 6 in the morning here after working junior provincials. I drove to Wawota. Larry and I worked the game on two-man crew. Uh, it was a senior double-A uh, provincial final uh, wouldn't you know what carlisle wins we have to play a second game because regina went through the round robin undefeated and back then you had to get beat right. twice played another game so larry and i worked two games together we got finished at about three o'clock and we drove from Mawoda south to kenosi and we went to the water slides they let us in for nothing we we, we kind of whined and gave them a song and dance about umpiring all weekend and working like a dog and being out in the sweat and mud and dirt and and they said yeah go ahead for a couple hours so we went water sliding for a couple hours went over to the moosehead for for dinner and then drove home tandem all the way from kenosi one of one of my most favorite memories with larry oh the places umpiring will bring us yes and I think it's only fair for our listeners. He's been mentioned here multiple times, and we are kind of working towards a Larry Schrader special. But Larry Schrader, 
in Saskatchewan, especially southeastern Regina, Saskatchewan. Larry worked, I believe, on the national circuit for a little while too. Yeah, he did make it to a number of national tournaments. We got some lot. We got lots of stories about a national <laughs> tournament that him and I went to too. So, <laughs> Calmer, I mentioned the word national championship. Larry Schrader, and you said in case we get to national championships, you got to share the story. Then let's move into your national experience. Let's start at the um, beginning, though. How many national championships have you been to? Uh, I've been to fourteen national tournaments. I've done the only age group I haven't done actually is uh, the Pee Wee Championship. Oh, wow. I've done every other one, in, and I count the Canada Games in Charlottetown in 2009 oh. as, a, as a national championship. There's no question. A couple of guys have come on the show, and they've mentioned, oh, I count the Canada Games as a national championship. I'm like, how is that not a national championship? That is one of the most pristine, if not the most pristine championship that we have on the Baseball Canada circuit. But, Elmer, that's quite impressive that you've done every championship except the 13U. But that's not uncommon because when you got into it, did your first championship wasn't the philosophy send the umpire where they think they can handle it? There wasn't so much of a pathway as there is today. I think it was more um, send them where I think they could fit, but I could be wrong on that. Um, the The situation for me was in 1996, uh, Saskatoon hosted the National Senior Championship, and the umpire crew, the 12 umpires, eight umpires were from Saskatchewan. I was one of those eight, and it was my first national tournament. A gentleman by the name of Bill Remenda recommended me to, to go to that event. We had two guys from Alberta and two guys from Manitoba, and Ron Shuchuk and Brian Hodgson were the two Manitoba umpires. So that's where I, I got to know those gentlemen a little bit better. Uh, uh, Brian was a crew chief on, on, on my tournament. So for me, I was outside of the norm. I didn't start at the younger age group and work my way up. But I did end up kind of detouring through more of my own fault than anything else back to the Bantam level in 2003 and did work my way up in the traditional fashion. I, I did progress through the age groups like others have. And fair, you kind of brought it up. Saskatchewan hosted a championship. Eight umpires there from Saskatchewan. It's my interpretation years ago, it used to be more regional-based where they sent the umpires, and that was always for cost. Sometimes you'd see an umpire fly across the country, but that wasn't the norm like it is today. That's true, and, and, and I think there's some validity in that statement as to why we had the eight. They didn't want to spend a lot of money flying guys because it's not cheap, not back then and not now. No, and I think now I think it's important to state that the umpire's home province covers the travel cost and the tournament covers the accommodation and the per diem and expenses. Because I think it's important that umpires know that there is a lot of money being invested in individuals to attend these championships. Your home province is spending money. The tournaments are spending money. The participants and teams are spending money. So please, when you show up, make sure that you're giving it your all and doing the best that you can. But anyways, 14 championships. Now, Elmer, is there a tournament that sticks out in your mind a little bit more than others? I actually have a few. Probably the first one that, for me, was a favorite was the first time I got to do a championship final plate, and that was 2004 in St. Albert, Alberta, in the Midget Championship. That, to me, kind of made me realize that, that I had to do more work with my body of work as an official and less work with my mouth because I was one to speak my mind, and I didn't have any filters at times, and I realized afterwards that I had to change that and tone back some of my comments and be a little bit more respectful of things, let my ability show what I really was as an umpire. It's interesting because I worked with Brian Hodgson 
in the gold medal game that that year to me at the end of the tournament i realized that you know i'd come full circle having started at a senior and thinking i was some great wonderful and then getting knocked down and having to prove myself and come back up and brian was a part of both of those even though we never spoke about it it's how i always viewed viewed that event the next tournament that sticks out in my mind is 2005 senior championship in Kamloops. We had a phenomenal crew that year. Rob Allen and Don Haas from BC were two guys who'd worked international events. Tom Langlois from Alberta, who'd been in the National Empire. Derek Dubell from Manitoba. Ben Mercier and, and Ben and I were on a crew with Mark Bodwell from BC. We had a lot of fun. It was, it was quite, a, quite an interesting crew. Ben worked the plate on the final game. A great umpire. Stéphane Dupont was there. That, Rene Provencher. Like, we had a lot of good umpires. Those and, are big names uh, from the And John Oko, sorry, John Oko was another guy. I worked a couple games with John. I worked the semifinal and the final game. And we had a real challenging game uh, in the semifinal. It was uh, Saskatoon was playing a Quebec team. And Rob Allen was at first, I was at second, John was at third, and a gentleman by the name of Brian Carnelli was on the plate. Rob and Brian called a block on a Quebec pitcher and it scored a Saskatoon run and put them up by a couple runs, I believe. The Quebec manager came out to argue and, and wasn't going to go away. So Rob looked at me, kind of shrugged his shoulders, and I nodded my head at him like maybe it's time to go in because they were on the first base side of home plate. So Rob goes down, the umpire's arguing with Brian, and next thing you see is there's about 15 feet between the Quebec coach and Brian Carnelli, and he's looking around wondering how he got there. And it was a perfect pick play where Rob kind of got him to the bench and got him away from Brian to, and stopped the prolonged argument. And I always found that to be one of the most telling moments for me on how umpires work together as a crew because brian could tell rob was coming in to help him out there was nobody else around and next thing you know the whole situation is dissolved and the manager's gone and i really i really thought that that was that was a really really um smart mature way of handling a situation well knowing rob and knowing some of the stories he's told him in brian had a great working relationship over the years rob came on the show and talked highly of Ryan Carnelli and a lot of experience with them. So it, that just talks about the relationship they have and the nonverbals and how that can make crews just that much better. And that's probably why we do crews long-term in baseball. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. These guys knew what they were doing. I didn't know. I knew Rob. I just met Brian and I just met John. So again, it was, it was something to see because I thought these guys handled it almost like a textbook setup. And we've said it before. The Baseball Canada Senior Men's Championship is a different beast. Those type of situations are going to happen there. Yeah, and and I found, too, that um, um, sometimes, you know, the, the players try and play the umpires, not just because they want to, but because they can. I had worked a Quebec team that particular tournament the day before, and the catcher and I had a nice little conversation in English. We were having no problems, him and I, because they were – doing okay in the game the next day the catcher gets hit by a thrown ball trying to steal second he's calling time nobody has the ball yet so i told him i said stay on the bag wait till the till somebody grabs the ball and i'll call time and he said in french he said no english french only so you know it was it, it, i learned something at that point too about how 
players and officials interact. I had never seen that before. And it was kind of an eye opener for me too, because I knew then that, that now things are going to be a little bit more challenging and I'd have to be on my toes a little bit more. Every game is a new game and a new learning experience. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned it, 2005 champion was Dartmouth, Nova Scotia and second place was Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Third place, we'll talk about it in a bit, but I'm not going to brag too much, but Chatham or my hometown, Machine, New Brunswick. I can remember 2005 being on the other side of the country following it as much as I could on the interweb at that time. The Baseball Canada Championships are always fun to, to follow. Since I bring it up, 2011, were you in Miramichi? Oh, as a matter of fact, I was. <laughs> yeah, it was, and that was a fun tournament too. It was, um, I got to see some of the uh, interaction between the New Brunswick provincial team and the host team. So yeah, it was, it was a good tournament. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had a good crew then too. It was a lot of fun. Who was on your crew that year? Brock Mulligan from Edmonton area and Mick Dad Jaffer from, I think he's from Ottawa, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we had a great crew. We had five games that, that went along like clockwork. We had no issues. And all three of us happened to work the uh, gold medal game on the bases. Oh, wow. So I'd never seen that before. An entire crew no. ended up on a gold medal game. No, I've never heard of that before myself either. But that gold medal game, it's a pretty good game. Not really. No. Um, Mrs. I think it was Windsor, not Mississauga. Windsor uh, ended up, I don't remember who they beat. I think they beat a team from New Westminster. Not the Blaze, but somebody else. Elmer, we've talked about that championship before here on the Leading Edge. That's a championship where the gold medal game was actually played before the bronze medal game due yeah. to weather on Monday. Fill us in on your perspective on it. Yeah. Because of the bad weather, we were at the tail end of a, of a tropical storm. The bronze medal, gold medal games were uh, rained out. They rescheduled them on Monday, uh, scheduling anomaly. They put the gold medal game at 12 o'clock and the bronze medal game pretty much immediately after. You're correct. And the little tower room behind home plate at Miramichi, uh, we sat up, I think it was on the third floor, we sat up, looked out the window and watched the game. And and, uh, sure enough, one team, I can't remember who, who won the game, but one team hit a grand slam home run the batter pimped it a little bit and the benches got a little heated and I think Ron Shuchuk was on the field amongst others and Lisa Turbitt and can't remember who else but uh, they had a little bit of a potential brouhaha that they had to handle right after that home run. Now it's my interpretation that this batter runner might have had to have been moved along by say a guy named Ron Suchuk. Yes he did that's true and he said that story to me a couple times too. Oh, the fun you'll have when you visit the Miramichi, where all the ladies sit on your knee. <laughs> okay, let's take a drive out of the Miramichi, and let's head across the Confederation Bridge over to Charlottetown PEI for the Canada Games. What was it like to get that call? Uh, it's it's such a neat feeling. It's um, I really wanted to, to umpire one. We had the one in Regina in 2005, and I really wanted to do that one. I thought that that would be a, a very cool honor. For, you know, reasons I wasn't chosen, which are fine. I, I was okay with it. I was on the organizing committee as the umpire liaison. And I just saw the atmosphere to be something that I really wanted to be a part of. I may have lobbied Trevor Drury. Uh, I may not. It, it, somebody could say that they saw us talking, but 
there's no video evidence of it so <laughs> i don't know how much trevor would admit to these days i heard he's he's struggling with some memory issues and he may not remember things to be the way they are so early onset uh, dementia yeah that's okay <laughs> but i ended up going to charlottetown and that was a real challenge too in just getting there the uh the day i was to fly out we had the uh, the end of a hurricane coming up the east coast and uh, i was phoned by air canada on a saturday my flight was sunday morning and i was told my flight from Tor toronto to charlottetown was already cancelled i said well what are my options and they said we can put you on a later flight i was to fly from i think i was to leave toronto at, at like one o'clock and get to charlottetown at four or something i flew into toronto i got there at 11 or 10 30 and I ended up sitting in the airport till about eight o'clock at night and then i flew to charlottetown and arrived at midnight and the other thing that was interesting was don gilbert was our head umpire okay phoned don after canada called me i said don it's elmer calling my flight's canceled but i'm going to arrive in at midnight so don't panic don't worry about me but i'll make it so i got to the hotel about one in the morning and wouldn't you know my room was right beside don's and his door was open so i opened the door i said don how you doing he goes Elmer, we had no idea if you're going to make it or not, or where you were, or what was going on. And I said, well, I phoned and left you a message. He said, my cell phone stopped working as soon as I got on to Prince Edward Island because Rogers, Rogers, had, Rogers didn't have a contract <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> to provide service on PEI, and he wasn't getting any phone calls. So I said to him, I said, well, it's okay, Don, when you leave the island, you'll get a message from me that I'm going to be a little bit late. <laughs> Here's a public service announcement for anyone living in the greater Toronto area. We understand that Rogers is a big deal. The reality is Rogers does not work in the Maritimes, or at least old Rogers did around that time. They ran GSM technology now with this 5G stuff. It might be a bit different, but you came to the Maritimes with your Rogers cell phone. You ran into the Don Gilbert situation. The other neat thing about that whole tournament, if you don't mind, Phil, is that... Um... Well, means... I got to work a game on uh, TSM as a plate umpire. And oh, wow. that to me was, was so cool. It, it was kind of like a highlight of my life at that time. You know, it's it's just something that you never ever thought of. And, you know, I, I phoned back home and said, hey, I'm going to be working this game. It's going to be televised coast to coast. And my mom was going through cancer treatment at the time. And uh, so she got to watch it. And to me, it was one of the, the most unique things that I ever got to be a part of. And then the kid that pitched the game for Ontario pitched a, a masterful game, 60 pitches or so, and never uh, had a base runner go past first base. So he got three guys on and three guys off on double plays or caught stealing or something. But it was a quick, quick game, but it was really a real cool thing to be part of. That does sound like a cool thing to be part of. Anytime you get the opportunity to work on national TV, I don't think you you turn it down. No, it was assigned to me, so I just said, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Come again. Exactly. Okay, Elmer, you have something else that's special that a lot of umpires aspire to in Canada here. You've been to Tournament 12 twice. Can you tell us what it's like to get the opportunity to go work at Rogers Centre? Sometimes when you think about it, words escape, actually, when you, when you actually get down on the field level and you say to yourself, gee, I've seen this place on television so much, and now here I am down on the field. At first, I thought the place was so big that that I'd kind of be 
lost, if you want to call them, on the field. There, you know, there's only three, four, five hundred people in the stands, you know, scouts and family members. And, and the idea isn't to bring the crowds, it's for the players to get looked at. And for us uh, as umpires, it was the start of the, the uh, evaluation process for international eligibility. Even though I had done an international event prior to that, they still wanted us to, to come in and show us what we could do. We did some specific training on four-man crews, which had never happened before. And we learned the pro uh, or MLB model of, of uh, working four-man crews. I thought that I was going to be way overwhelmed and I didn't know what to expect other than I really wanted to show that I belong there as an umpire. And I remember the first game I did was actually the second game on of the event, and I did the plate. And so I thought, well, I'm going to call a good strike. And the first pitch come in, and boom, I called strike. And wouldn't you know, the echo almost slapped me in the head and knocked me on my butt. <laughs> it was so incredibly loud coming back. Really? And yeah, because it was empty, right? Because the roof was closed, and because my voice has a little bit of a carry when I call a strike, it came back. And so I kind of toned it down a bit. And then once the game started getting going, it was just like any other game. But it's still something that I really, really cherish as, as a great memory. The thing is, the baseball field is the bases are 90 feet apart. Mound 60 feet, six inches, and Rogers Center is only 325 feet down the line and 400 feet in center field. I think your park in Regina is bigger than that. Uh, Optimus Park has bigger dimensions than that. You're right. I think it's deceiving because of the roof. Right. And because of the enormous uh, walls on the side. Uh, I've been to a few football stadiums. They're not as closed in as those seats are at Rogerson. So when you when you took a look around and you saw everything, the size and enormity of that facility is what really caught my breath. And that's why I thought I'd be so small and insignificant. Because here I am, I don't even know, what is it, 10 stories high, 12 stories yeah. high? I could even be more. Yeah. And, and you feel like, wow, like you're in this big space. Is anybody even going to hear you say something? And the way the sound bounces around, they hear you loud and clear. This is not an official statistic, but I was watching a telecast last year and I believe they said the ball has only hit the roof once or twice. Like there's not really many documented cases of the ball hitting the roof, unlike Tampa Bay, where the roof is in play in certain sections and some of the other ballparks, the roof is in play or there's specific ground rules. They're not as worried at the Rogers Center that the ball is hitting the roof. And another reason why they're not really concerned is I think the roof is about 280 feet high at its apex. So essentially, you got to borrow a spacecraft from SpaceX to get to the top of it. But it's good to know for anybody going to T12 in the future, maybe practice working on your Tim McCollin. Because we all know that Tim McCollin didn't really say too much too loud in his day. Yeah, that could be one way to approach it, no doubt. Now, Elmer, let's move on. International Championships. Where and when was your first international event? I went to the World University Baseball Championship in 2010 in Tokyo, Japan. How'd you get and, selected for that? Um, it was the Baseball Canada Umpire Committee selection. We had never sent an umpire to that event. Steve Butang had gone on his own ticket in 2008. Like, I have no foundation of this, but I'm wondering if somebody saw that as an event that we should try and send an umpire to 
there must have been some budget money for it. A number of umpires in that same year, in 2010, got selected to work uh, the World Youth or the World Under 18 in Thunder Bay. And I was not one of those, but uh, I was selected to go to Japan. In hindsight, I was so thankful that I got selected to where I did because that was, again, a very, very cool experience. And I have so many photos from there and so many memories that it just, uh, it's, it's hard to believe now that it's almost 11 years ago that I went. Uh, but the the images and the experiences are still quite vivid. Well, looking at that 2010 event, there were some big names now that were there then. And look at Sonny Gray, pitcher for the Colorado Rockies. You got Jose Abreu, Jonas Cespedes, Matt Burns, a World Series champion in 2018. Blue Jay, current Blue Jay, George Springer, World Series champion with the Astros in 17. And then three-time All-Star Garrett Cole. Those are the kids that you umpired before they got to the major leagues, and now they're in the major leagues, right. and they're superstars. Right, and they were there before their draft year. Correct me if I'm wrong, Elmer, but you can't be at the World University Games if you're drafted. They have certain rules that you can't pitch and you can't do certain things. So most players go prior to the draft. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not so sure on that. I, okay. There there was an age limit. Uh, the youngest that you could be was 18, and the oldest you could be, I think, was 28. You had to be enrolled in a university program. All the American players were were draft eligible in, in the 2011 entry draft, so they were all a year before. I, I don't know if any of the Canadian players got drafted, but there was one pitcher from Japan that ended up being the first overall pick the next year in the Japanese amateur draft. So there were some phenomenal young collegiate players at that event, and you're right, some of them turned into some great pros too. Looking at what these names are now in the baseball world, what was it like umpiring them? Could you see that they were going to be dominant in the years to come? Actually, I, I couldn't, and the only reason is because I didn't really focus on them. Okay. Um, the one guy that stood out in my mind more than anything else was Jose Abreu. I did two Cuba games. Uh, I did three Cuba games, actually, where I was at first base for all three games. The first one, I ended up having to go behind the plate in the sixth inning because the gentleman from Taiwan had heat stroke. And I was a backup plate umpire, so I ended up going in in the middle of a Japan-Cuba game. And it was a contested game. And uh, But standing beside Jose Abreu, I didn't... Like I was taken back by how big he was back then, and he's still a big man now. And he wasn't as solidly built. He was a little bit, and I don't want to use the term softer, but he wasn't muscular. He was just big. And standing beside him, I felt like a small <laughs> little ant because if I got in his way, I'm sure he'd run me over and knock me on my butt. <laughs> well, Pro athletes, we see them on TV. They all look small because they're all relatively the same height. But I think the average is like six foot three, six foot four. So they look small amongst each other, but they're big in real life. Yeah, and when you get behind home plate, and and me, I'm not quite six feet tall. I'm five eleven, and a lot of those guys are all taller than me. And I just kind of looking up to them. The the most interesting thing, though, that happened, and every guy officiated an international event, probably nod their head at this, but I was taken back by the Asian players who would come to home plate, take off their helmet, face the umpire, and bow. 
I just like I, I just thought, my God, this is something I'm not used to. Do I bow back? Do I ignore them? Do I say, "Hey, how's it going?" <laughs> you know, yeah, I I, <laughs> I didn't know what to do at first, and then I just thought, well, I'll bow back to them too because I don't want to be seen as disrespectful, and and I just would bow back to them, and then they put their helmet on, get in the box, and game on. Right. <laughs> Did you get coached on that after the game? Is that the right thing to do? I mean, it's a different culture. Is there a relationship? No, I didn't, actually. And and I think the interesting thing about, about the Japanese especially is that they're not willing to really be up front with that kind of stuff unless okay. it's an, an egregious thing, unless it's something that offends someone. But at this point, I, I don't know of anybody that was offended. No. it's and, and nobody ever said anything to me. It's a mutual respect thing. Obviously, unless you were intentionally going out to, to go out of your way to harm it, I right. can't see people saying it. It's just yeah. interesting, the culture of baseball, same game, three outs, nine innings, throw a ball, hit a ball, but how it's different yeah. around the world. Yeah, exactly. It. And, and and that's one of the things I was worried about was how I would fit in. But as soon as a, you know, a couple pitches happen and a play at the base, you realize you got to turn your game up and be a little bit quicker, a little bit faster, a little bit sharper, a little bit more accurate than what you are at home, and then it's just baseball. For other people I've talked to, you worked in Japan. What was the crowds like for a Japan game? We were led to believe that they were sold out, which would have been, in a couple of stadiums, would have been over 30,000 people, but it wasn't. The event that was sold out that same weekend was a high school national championship in another city, and they had 30,000-plus crowds. We had the Japan-Cuba game that I ended up going in as a plate umpire in the sixth inning had about 9,000 people. That was the largest crowd we had. We had a crowd of 8,000 in Yokohama for Japan-USA semifinal game, and that was pretty fun because the crowd was really into it. Yes. The Americans had scored four right off the hop, and then the Japanese uh, kept fighting back and made it close, but couldn't beat the Americans. And the crowd was really into it. It was actually a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. Really interesting that you mentioned that the stadiums are sold out for the high school tournament. Well, you are right. In Japan, there are two annual baseball championships held annually. One referred to as Summer Koshin, and that's where the high school championship takes place. Now, there are local showdowns and plans to get to this championship which takes place at Hanshin Koshin Stadium in Japan, or known as Koshin Stadium. Now, this stadium was built in 1924 to host this championship specifically. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool stuff. It is a really cool thing, and a lot of high school athletes, they aim to get into this championship because it is a lifetime of memories, and it's a lot of intensity with the sold-out crowds, a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously with the big crowds. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> And just to highlight it, this championship has played host to future major leaguers such as Ichiro Suzuki, Hideki Matsui, Dasuke Matsuzaka, Yu Darvish, and current major league baseball phenom Shohei Otani. Post show edit. Please excuse my pronunciation of those names. Now back to the show. Calmer, let's roll on. Being a prairie boy like yourself, growing up on pierogies, cabbage rolls, banana cream pies. What was it like for you to umpire in another country where the food and the accommodations might have been not to your familiarity, to say the least? Um, it was it was interesting because um, one of the first things I noticed is that they really looked after us. The host committee were very, very accommodating. So we would get to a ballpark 
And right away it would be, what do you want? Here's the menu, order something. You come off the field, what do you want? You hungry? Here's something. I asked to go to a store to buy some memorabilia once, and they took me there. Myself and the American umpire, a gentleman by the name of uh, Greg Street, uh, we were given a full day tour of, of parts of Tokyo the day after the event ended. We, one of the other umpires was our host, him and his wife, and we were driven around to different places, got to see different things within Tokyo. It was like they were our personal guides. So everything was first class, and they always went out of their way to make sure we felt comfortable and had exactly what we needed. So did you find like a go-to food that would keep you regular during the week, or what was the... <laughs> the, uh, the hotel we were at, it was actually a hotel complex. It was about four or five hotels, and our kits that we were given at the beginning of the tournament were good for all of the hotels. Okay. And, and the one... The Takanawa Prince Hotel, very, very nice place, had a huge breakfast buffet. And it had a section called Western Buffet. <laughs> so you could go get sausage, eggs, toast, cereal, things that we were used to. Or you could go get something more localized. We found one place uh, about two blocks away from our hotel. It was almost like a soup counter. But it didn't serve soup. It, it served this uh, rice, uh, grilled pork and onions with some really great seasoning on it. And we would go there and sit down and eat a bowl of this. It would take like two minutes to make it. We'd sit down and eat it. It cost like three or four bucks. We thought it was it was the most fantastic little snack slash meal that we could find on a whim. But I did get to sample lots of raw I got to eat a sumo wrestler's traditional meal, but not the same portions. Okay, I fair. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to finish that. Don't they take but, in like 6,000 calories four times a day or something like that? Uh, right. Yeah, I don't know. We had this thing called an egg drop soup. And oh. my, I've seen my mom and dad used to make this too. And uh, I... I didn't like it, uh, and, and it tasted no different in Japan. <laughs> but I ate it to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> the things we do to be polite and not offend anybody. Exactly. What hotel did you stay at? Did you say you stayed at the Nakatomi Plaza? No, it's called the Takanawa Prince Hotel. Oh, I thought you might have stayed at the hotel in Die Hard. Sorry. Oh, wait, that was in California. <laughs> no, no, uh, Bruce wasn't there. Sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. I know I've talked to Aaron Roberts before, and he says when he went to Japan, he lived on ramen noodles. He said felt really comfortable with it. Simple, basic. You can always find a McDonald's around the corner if you really, really needed something like that, too. Did you try Japanese McDonald's? I did once, yeah. And it was uh, just as bad as Canadian yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. Or just as good, however you want to look at it. <laughs> right. The same two ninety nine Big Mac. Yeah. What are some of the other international events that you've been able to partake in? After the uh, Tokyo event, I went in 2015 to Toronto and got to be part of the Pan Am Games experience. I was one of the three Canadian umpires for the women's baseball. What an honor. That was the most incredible uh, thing to be selected for, uh, just to be part of the multi-sport games experience. I've been fortunate to be part of Saskatchewan Summer Games. I've been part of the Canada Summer Games and then the Pan Am Games. Just the way we were treated and the event itself and meeting some of the players and officials from other countries was was second to none. Uh, then in 2017, I went to Thunder Bay for the 
world under 18. And that was my last. Bit. Um, well, Elmer, I'm happy to say that you round out the trifecta of umpires that attended the women's championship there in the Pan Am Games in 2015 to appear here on the leading edge. Other two being Corey Davis and Ron DePaul's. Corey and I roomed together in Toronto for 10 days. I feel so, bad for Corey. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We went to a lot of different uh, uh, venues uh, with Andrew Higgins, who was our supervisor. We And Rhonda came with us a few times, Rhonda Pauls. We went and saw some basketball, some team handball, track and field, uh, table tennis. We, we went around. We went to a few Blue Jay games, too, before they left on the road trip. And so it was it was a very cool 10 days. That was a very monumental time for Toronto. I think it was an audition to see if they could capacity-wise host the Olympics. But judging on the excitement of that event and how congested it was, I don't think you're going to see Toronto host the Olympics anytime soon. Right. I don't think the city's wanting to be part of that. The infrastructure is not there long-term. No. No, that's true. But speaking of infrastructure, you go to Thunder Bay. What a talent to host an international event. What was it like to work there? Thunder Bay, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was a good baseball city. And the people who were part of the event, the volunteers and the, everything that was part of that event was is exactly as advertised. I, I was told it was going to be well run, and it was. I was told there's going to be good crowds for some of the games, and there was. It was just uh, an incredible experience again. One of my um, umpire patriots, if you want to call it, from Japan that I worked a few games in 2010 with was the Japanese umpire. So oh, wow. we worked a game together with him. Phenomenal umpire. We had we had a lot of fun as a crew. Mm-hmm. We took a day trip to these falls just west of Thunder Bay. I, I can't remember the name of it, but you know the the guys from Europe and the American guy and and the other umpires really got a kick out of it. You know the fact that we were able to take a couple of vehicles and and just see something totally different and unique to Canada in that area was a lot of fun. Now, on this show, we often hear about stories of umpires who have gone to other international events. But let's flip the table here and talk about the pride of being from Canada and getting to show off some of this great nation. Because I'm going to be a little bit prejudiced here and coming from Saskatchewan, Northern Ontario, Thunder Bay is a big difference from Saskatchewan. But it's so nice to hear that the umpire community from around the world gets together and gets the opportunity to visit some of these great places that host baseball. Yeah, exactly. It was um, it was something that I always wanted to see what was going on in other places when I went. Japan, especially. One of my good friends on through Facebook, uh, his name is Takeru. He's in Tokyo. He introduced himself to me, and I didn't understand his name. He called and says, uh, "Hello, my name is uh, Takeru Kikuchi." And I said, <laughs> "Excuse me." He says, uh, "You can call me Atama Cruz." Atama Cruz. <laughs> I, I love it. And I said, "Well, if you're Tom Cruise, I'm Burt Reynolds, <laughs> and we've been friends ever since." And, and it's it's just the it's just the, the the most interesting end of things because once you develop the friendship, then you'll do stuff together and see different things. And he was the guy that got me around uh, in Yokohama a little bit, so. It was a lot of fun, and, and I still stay in touch with him. He's he's a great guy. Well, then I got to ask you: Were you Burt Reynolds or Burt Reynolds with a big hat? It was Burt Reynolds with the stash. <laughs> Elmer's trademark, the stash. I got a goatee. <laughs> That's the only guy I could think of at the time. But I didn't want to say I was like Burt Bacharach or someone goofy like that. <laughs> I don't know. We we can go with Burt Reynolds. He's a celebrity Jeopardy superstar. Yes, he is. <laughs> Gotta say, I love the Saturday Night Live Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, it's it's a classic. 
Since we bring it up, check out our show description. Burt Reynolds in a big hat on Saturday Night Live, Celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, okay. Okay, Elmer, you've cashed in all your air miles. Let's bring it back to Saskatchewan. How many years have you been working the combination of the Saskatchewan Major Baseball League, Western Major Baseball League, and now the Western Canadian Baseball League? I have worked that league through the three iterations or whatever you want to call it. I've worked it 39 years. Had there been a league played last year, that would have been my 40th season. I did my first games there in 1981, and I've worked in all of the cities in Saskatchewan that have had teams in it. More so, not so much in the SAS Major League because there was towns like Kindersley and Unity and Eston and Hazlet that don't have big baseball anymore. But I've worked in Swift Current and Moose Jaw and Weyburn and Regina and Yorkton and Melbourne and Saskatoon. It really didn't hit me till we walked off the field in Okotoks at the end of the 2019 season when I thought, gee, this is like 39 straight years of work in this league, whether it's one game or 20 games or 25 games, however many I do in a season. It's 39 consecutive seasons of working at least one game. That's quite impressive because I bring up that league specifically because 2019, you're the inaugural umpire of the year in the Western Canadian Baseball League. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> I, I know we don't do it for the awards, but what was it like to get the phone call to be like, hey, Elmer? Actually, I didn't get a phone call. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know this. No, I don't. I yeah, do not know this story. So one day, I'm, I'm at work, I was on coffee break, and I'm a Twitter junkie. I like to follow the news and sports. I see this tweet that says, 2019 Western Canada Baseball League Awards announced, and all-star teams in this. So I open it up, and I'm looking at the article, and I'm thinking, do, do I remember any of these players? And, and I know Ron Shuchuk follows some of these guys' stats really closely, so he probably would have... Uh, a better handle on the all-star selection than I would. But I thought, okay, yeah, I recognize some of these names, and maybe Ron and I will talk about these guys afterwards. I'm scrolling down, and it says the all-star teams and the batter and the pitcher and all this stuff, and it has the coach of the year. And then it says umpire of the year, and I look at it, and I go, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> and <laughs> it was me. <laughs> Now, it's interesting you bring up the name Ron Suchuk because I know that he's a big statistician-type guy. He likes to follow the batting averages, the ERA of all the players in that league. Heck, I heard he knows every player's first pet by their first name. Yeah, he usually knows who the batting leaders are. More often than not, I think he uh, pays close attention to the guys from Manitoba. Yes. I think there was a young young man from Manitoba who was the batting leader in 2019 and and Ron could list his stats at the drop of a hat and we you know he would he would say he doesn't really pay attention that closely but we know he's pouring over the box scores every morning from the night before. With all the technology now do you really think he waits till the next morning or do you think he's on the Twitter and the YouTube live that night watching it as it's going on? Exactly. It depends on who's driving. If he's driving, of course, he'd be foolish to be checking box scores. But I know for a fact that when one of us are driving him back, he's checking out the box scores and he's going over play-by-play -play situations in, in the game just to see that everything was handled right. And then he knows who those stats leaders are going into the next day. Won't lie. One of the things that I'm missing a lot right now with this whole pandemic is definitely the road trips to and from the field. 
Now, if memory serves me correctly, it's not uncommon for Ron to drive to the park and then after the game say, hey, here's the keys. Can you look after my Tucson and let's get it home because it's a little bit too dark for me to drive as he's in the passenger seat there checking box scores or trying to catch the tail end of another game in another park that's, like I said, live on YouTube. (laughs) I've had a few of those experiences too. And and all kidding aside, yeah, Ron is astute as to why somebody else should drive. Uh, yeah, what a great guy to work with. And he's a lot of fun to talk and banter with. He's a fantastic guy. And we've had him here on the leading edge. Guy that's been around the world, works in big championship games. But the one thing he is, is he's a student yeah, yeah. of the game. It's amazing how at, even after all these years, he's a student. And then it kind of leads into the fact that he ends up at a place called The Study. The Study. It makes sense. he actually has already done his homework ahead of time because he's done all of his studying on the way back from wherever. Since we're on the topic of awards, I don't know how to say it, but like Larry Walker, you are currently waiting to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, unlike Cooperstown, your Hall of Fame is the Saskatchewan Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. How did this all come about? I, I, I agree with you. I don't know how to to categorize it um there hasn't been an official induction ceremony but i was notified along with uh, a number of other people one of them being uh fellow umpire rocky nickel out of moose jaw um that were inductees into the saskatchewan baseball hall of fame in 2020 the ceremony now is scheduled for late august of this year it'll you know remains to be seen if it'll actually go ahead yeah of course Given the pandemic, so. Yeah, given the pandemic, but I got to say the Baseball Saskatchewan Hall of Fame, I believe they're celebrating 31 years was the, supposed to be the 2020 induction. I, year, they had an anniversary the year before, and Fergie Jenkins came in, was the guest speaker. So they definitely worked to put on a good show. The Saskatchewan Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, for anyone that's interested, is in Battleford, Saskatchewan. They're open Monday to Thursday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if you want to... Drop in and find out some history about baseball in Saskatchewan. Personally, I've had the opportunity to tour it a few times, living in Battleford. Now, I really encourage anyone, if you're coming through Saskatchewan, or Battleford specifically, stop in, check it out. You just don't know some of the history that is right under our feet. Calmer, let's dig deep into the vault of memories. At one time, Southern Saskatchewan had an independent professional baseball league. Did you have the opportunity to work it? Yes, I did. It was called the Prairie League of Professional Baseball. Evolved out of another league. In 1994, there was a new league called the North Central Baseball League. Uh, Regina, Saskatoon, and a bunch of American towns in North Dakota, Minnesota, and South Dakota had teams. They folded. I had worked a number of games in that league. And then in 1995, the new league, the Prairie League of Professional Baseball, was formed. Regina, Saskatoon, Moose Jaw, and Brandon were the Canadian teams. Minot, Bismarck, Aberdeen, South Dakota, and I think Brainerd, Minnesota were the American teams. So it lasted from 95 to 97. I worked a number of games in, in, those, uh, in all three of those seasons. Very interesting league because... A lot of the players were players aspiring to be professional, but hadn't gotten into an organization. So they're on their way up trying to get in. Or ex-major league players or ex-AAA players who were on their way down and trying to stay in. Uh, So lots of unique personalities that we came across in those three years. Now we've heard before here that at one time, independent professional baseball could get testy. Like you said, people are fighting for jobs, trying to stay in the game. Did you ever encounter any hot situations? 
Well, there was there was one situation where we actually had a, a brawl. It didn't come to to blows as such, but one guy, it was Moose John Regina. We were in Moose Jaw. Uh, Randy Zer and I were working the game. And the one guy, I have a picture of it from the newspaper. He, and I wouldn't want to walk across this guy in a dark alley. He had the bat like a billy club halfway <laughs> up the bat. And he was holding it ready to go in case somebody was was stepping out of line. But we had guys throwing at each other that game. As a plate umpire, I had four ejections. We had the benches empty once. Uh, we had warnings issued. And that was the first game of a doubleheader on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. How come we didn't bring them any pie? <laughs> Aren't Sunday afternoons reserved for family day? Like, why the intensity? Yeah, I think so, because... Uh... We played Friday night, and then Saturday's game was uh, rescheduled to Sunday afternoon uh, as part of a doubleheader. The, the two teams, Regina and Moose Shot teams, really didn't like each other. The one batter for Regina had been hit three times on Friday night. We didn't handle the game as well as we could have that night. And then Sunday afternoon, it was like they picked up and kept going from right. Friday night. So it was it was a lot of challenges. It was indicative of, of the league because everybody was scrapping. Even the managers were scrapping. We had I had another situation. Uh, I had another situation where it was right at the end of a season and Regina was playing Saskatoon, and the Saskatoon team was out of the playoffs. Oh, they yeah. weren't going to make the playoffs. Second last game of the year, they were mailing it in. And the Regina team was going to make the playoffs. So they're playing. And I had a guy attempt to drag bunt in the seventh inning. You know, he hit the ball off the plate, come up and hit him in the batter's box. I call foul ball. Well, the Saskatoon guys wanted me to call him out. They said he was out of the batter's box. I said, no, this is my call. I'm sticking with it. The argument ends. The guy goes, manager goes back. And uh, somebody from the bench swore at me. Okay. So I called time. I found a guy with a jacket on thinking he was a relief pitcher or a starting pitcher from another day. And I tossed him out. He was a designated hitter batting third. Oh. And he came running out, screaming and yelling. And the manager came out, and nobody, you know, nobody really stopped these guys. When I got them to settle down, the manager walked over to the bench, grabbed the bats, and started throwing the bats on the field. Oh. Okay. Then the helmets, then the bucket of baseballs. Then he grabbed the cooler, dropped it, put the lid back on the cooler nice and neat, and then tossed it out into the middle of the field. <laughs> the The bat boy looked at me, and, and I kind of went, you know, come out here, come out here. And he looked at me and he says, who's going to clean this up? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I don't see the players moving, so I think it's up to you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, it, you know, there was just some unique situations like that that we come across that we don't normally see in amateur baseball. Right. And I think the game has changed over the years too. Yeah, a little bit. I, I, it, but again, we don't, you know, we don't see that now. We don't hear about it. Yeah. Now I won't say the game of baseball itself has changed, but I think of how situations are handled. Everybody has a piece of technology in their hands, and that stuff's on the internet within five minutes. So if you want to ruin your career quickly, have at it. Yeah, exactly. And and it, you're right because as soon as you do something foolish, whether it's an official or a player or a coach. Um, that'll follow you around, whether you deserve it or not. Right. You're exactly right. Okay, Elmer, we've talked a lot about Regina here. This evening. We talked a lot about Regina here on this show. One of the things that is big from Regina in the umpire world 
guy by the name of Stu Shearwater. Did you get the opportunity to work with Stu as a kid? And if so, share with us some of his dirty laundry. Sure did. Actually, we've crossed paths with Stu right from the right from the get-go. He attended a clinic. I don't remember what year it was. It was, I'm going to say, right around 2000. Uh, Larry Schrader and I. Larry! Yeah, we were we were instructing. We split up the, the the guys. There was lots of kids, and you know you don't think of anything about these kids. You try and get them excited about wanting to be umpires, and you know Stu didn't stick out as being remarkable one way or another. He was like any other kid. Got excited. You try and get them excited about it, but you don't know if you're getting through to them. They do kids things. They laugh at stuff and they make fun of people. And sounds like me and, in a clinic. Uh, yeah, so so we finish the clinic and we have these evaluation forms. So we pass out the evaluation forms. They fill them out, leave them. We gather our stuff. We go home or we go to a restaurant or whatever. And Larry and I are reading the evaluation forms, and there's a bunch of unique comments from some of the kids. And so we we tried to pin down who it was uh, years later when we found out that Stu was actually at that clinic and. Well, he claims to, to, to know who it was who wrote it, and, and I don't think he would have done anything. He uh, wouldn't give up the name of the individuals that made some of the funny comments. But, it, you know, all kidding aside, Stu ended up being, of course, ended up being a, a, a great umpire, uh, a good friend here in Regina to umpiring in, in Regina and Saskatchewan. I worked with him a number of years when he got uh, to be about 18 years old. He started working with us. Uh, he was our signer for the Regina Baseball Umpires Association. Uh, he worked with his dad, so his dad was very accommodating and letting Stu handle assignments and game changes and things of that nature. And he turned out being, a, uh, even in his younger years before he went to pro school, to be an astute evaluator of other umpires. Uh, one of my problems as a plate umpire, especially working uh, younger age groups and lower age, uh, lower playing levels is I'm a flincher behind a plate. So a ball goes in the dirt, I flinch. And I remember flinching once it's at a pitch that bounced and I didn't get hit, but I looked down at Stu and Stu shaking his head at me and pounding his, his two fists into his thighs, like lock in and stay locked in was kind of the, the body language he was giving me. And even then I thought, you know, how much he understood what we should be doing as umpires. And, of course, I'd like to think that, that we all here in Regina that worked with him gave him a little nudge and a little bit of, of guidance and, and inspiration. And maybe for me it was showing how not to flinch behind <laughs> the plate. <laughs> it turned him into a better umpire. Kind of like reverse feedback, the what not to do's. Andrew Downs touched on it on the last episode. Exactly. And and so, um, uh, you know, great to see Stu have the success that he's had. There's no doubt about that. For sure. One of the umpires that I like to communicate with on a regular basis, a good friend of mine, probably yours too, Bob Sonder. Yes. Now, Bob will say that Stu's a flincher. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't remember Stu flinching, but I'm not going to say Bob's wrong. I'll say it right now. I'll throw Bob under the bus. He'll throw me a text every once in a while and go, man, Stu's moving a lot tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Stu took a, a couple um, foul balls off the off the mask last year in one game. 
it knocked him back a little bit. It was last year or the year before. I remember talking to him afterwards, and he said that it was uh, it really knocked him for a loop. So I can understand those guys oh, yeah. uh, flinching a little bit, you know, with those 95-plus fastballs that are coming in and off the bat, and they take a beating more than we can ever imagine. Oh, no question. That can't be fun. A lot no. of perks to umpiring in Major League Baseball, but that can't be one of them. Exactly. I know every time I see it happen, I always go, I hope that's not the one. You don't want to see a career end like that. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Calmer, moving on. We're going to move on to a section called 10 Questions. I am going to ask you 10 questions if I like the answer. If I disagree with it. The goal is not to get any of the second one, okay? Okay. We like to talk about movies, music, food, some basic non-umpire stuff. So let's start with the first one. Do you prefer a pizza or like a pizza pocket or a calzone? Pizza. Ah, you can't screw up a good pizza. No question. I'm just going to throw the plug out there, even though they don't sponsor it. Every umpire's favorite spot to hang out after a game has to be Boston Pizza. Now, I know this is going to touch a nerve of a lot of people across the country, but 2021, is this the year the Leafs finally win the Stanley Cup? God, I hope so. Holy! Anytime you drop the God reference, you're always hoping for success. Tell us. What's the key to the success for the Leafs this year? Goaltending. I thought their goaltending is doing pretty well. The last few games, they've struggled a bit. But goaltending is always the key. A hot goalie you can ride for so long, they can win you a series. And they haven't shown to have that game-breaker goalie for a number of years. Probably 25 years. Now, would you say this year is the year? Didn't they have one goaltender go, what, 10-0 and or 11-0? and Yeah. He has the potential to be the, the one to take them over his career. He hasn't shown it yet. So so the uncertainty of the goaltending situation is there. And the power play. Holy smokes, they got a crappy power play right now. <laughs> yeah, that's what Ashton Liskey says. Power play is not there. But all jokes aside, there's not a lot of fans in the stands this year. Knowing Toronto has a great fan base. Do you think that helps or hinders a team like the Leafs? Yeah, I don't think so because both teams have that same advantage or disadvantage. Right. I think uh, it has the intensity or the desire has to come more from within and less ride on emotion and more on professionalism and maturity. So what you're saying is it's essentially the best players that are going to win and it's not going to be any hometown favorites. I Yeah, and, and I think Tampa showed that last year in my mind. They were the best team with the best players. Well, like you, I really hope this is the year because this is the last year I'm cheering for the Leafs. Next year, I become a lifelong Seattle Kraken fan. Just put it out there, I've never missed a game yet. Good luck with that. (laughs) You can laugh, but I just want to say that they've won the same amount of Stanley Cups that the Leafs have over the past 53 years. Shots fired! Shots fired! Calmer, you could star in any movie remake. What movie would it be? I would love to be in Field of Dreams as the umpire on the ghost games. Feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. He will come. Thank you, Kevin Costner. What a great movie. Gotta say I'm a big Kevin Costner fan in general, so that's always a favorite of mine. Yeah, it's it's probably my most favorite baseball movie. That and The Natural, it's a toss-up. They're both such great movies in my mind about the game I love. Okay, let's move on to a little random question. If you could own any exotic pet, what pet would it be? <laughs> oh, man. How about a hyena? They'd be a challenge. I think so. 
And judging by how much you like to laugh, I think you and the hyena would get along really well. <laughs> More than likely, yeah. Now, I know the answer to this question as your favorite concert of all time, Bruce Springsteen. Being the big fan of music and all the concerts you've attended over the years, what's your second favorite? Um, Fleetwood Mac was my second favorite. I went to see them twice in Saskatoon. The second time, Christine McVie was with them, and she she's phenomenal. She made that show. The first time, it was such a letdown. But when they had the five big-name musicians as part of the band, they were incredible. I just I didn't want the concert to end. That's pretty awesome. No question. Fleetwood Mac, probably one of the top bands of all time. You know, you got Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood. Oh, great musicians and some great tunes. Considering your almost half century of umpiring, what rule change would you like to implement in baseball? I'd get rid of video replay. I don't like it. I don't think it helps the game. I'm going to disagree. I think the interpretation of what video replay was supposed to do and basically how the game, it's changed the game, I don't agree with. Now, let's talk about it real quick. I don't like the idea of leaving the glove on and then calling it out because the guys come off a millimeter and a half. Exactly, and I think that's the part that really bugs me. It, it seems to me that that the whole nature of the sport has changed because of those little things that the human eye doesn't really it, it they see it but they don't it doesn't register with them right. and nobody gets worked up over it if it if a guy's foot comes off a millimeter and then he puts it back down nobody's freaking out right and and why are we why are we delaying the game to watch it on screen to figure that out that's what i don't like about it yeah and i think it's even getting more difficult with getting some of these plays so close to the play where they can't even overturn it. It's so close. Yeah, and we talk about that as instructors, not to get too close to the play because it'll blow up in your face and you won't know what you're seeing. And right. that's that could happen there too. Right, that's a great tip. And it's not where I was going with it. I mean, like, even the video, it frame by frame, even the fr they can't even overturn it on video because it's inconclusive. It's yeah. It's rather amazing. I think one of the ways they fix that rule is you, you tag them on the initial play. Your glove has to come off and you have to reapply the tag. That's And that's exactly it. I, I would agree with that. I actually think if they could add a rule, they should just play ask the audience. <laughs> you know, Right now, they wouldn't get many responses in some parks. <laughs> ah. I mean, or we could play who wants to be a millionaire and go like 50-50. I mean, most of my yeah. calls are 50-50 anyways. 50-50 chance I'm going to get it right. 50-50 chance I'm going to get it wrong. So Yeah, that's I mean, true. We already play that game, so I think we just play ask the audience, and then everyone's happy. Yeah. Okay, we've talked about Regina, talking about food. What is your favorite restaurant in Regina? For takeout and, and that, Houston Pizza on Hill Avenue. Houston Pizza, a staple of Regina, Saskatchewan. For 40 years, 40 plus years. Is that the original Houston Pizza? It sure is. A little hole in the wall, but by God, they make a great pie. Yes, they do. For the listeners, you have a lot of experience on people. Think about your home. What is one tool that you think that every person or family needs to have in their home? A tool? Like an like something that you can carry and do something? Right. Now it's got to be a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
I guess you got to go to YouTube to figure out how to fix it and what you're going to need. That's I never would have thought of that as a tool. But next time my father-in-law says, what do you got that stupid cell phone for? I'm going to be like, it's a tool. I have, I am not a handyman. Uh, I never had a lot of training on that. And uh, I either look for somebody to fix it for me or <laughs> the other time I'll do the YouTube thing, but not very often. <laughs> oh, the YouTube. It's got me out of a few jams over the years. I think one tool that everybody needs to have in their home is a multimeter. With everything being electrical nowadays, it's bailed me out a few times. Now, a guy that's been around the world umpiring, and I know you've got to see Stu work his first game at Dodger Stadium. What's one major league stadium that you would really like to get to? Uh, Fenway. I hate the Red Sox, but I love that park. That's a beautiful yeah. park. Yes, I, I want to see it. Well, when you get the chance to see it, you won't be disappointed. And I'll even go as far as saying that Boston is a beautiful city to visit. You'll have a lot of fun there. But the Red Sox are still cheaters. Now, I know, Elmer, you're a multi-sport official. Just to confirm before I ask, you referee hockey? Yes, I do. Do you prefer to wear a half visor or a half cage? <laughs> oh, geez, am I ever surprised this one's there. I wear a half cage. You were guaranteed to get one question wrong on 10 questions. <laughs> oh, you got to tell us the story how you get into a half cage. We're, we're not telling this for Trevor Drury's sake. <laughs> Do we really um, want to go there right now? Yeah, it's, you know, I started umpiring baseball before I started refereeing hockey. I just found that the half visor, the plexiglass would fog up. No matter what I used to try and keep it clear, I just found that visibility was an issue. And when I put the bars on instead of the plexiglass, there's nothing that fogs up. And I'm used to looking through the bars with the, um, with the umpire mask. So why wreck a good thing? Why wreck a good thing? I'm going to be honest with you. I was giving you the opportunity to defend your choice. And considering that you're bringing the beautiful game of baseball into the hockey rink, I'm going to give you a... <laughs> going to give you a pass. So, wow. fair enough. You win. Okay, Elmer. Moving on to a final segment of the show. We call it Local Legends. It's where we give the guests the opportunity to give a shout-out to the people that are working hard to make baseball flourish in their community. So, Elmer, who is your local legend? Right now, in the umpiring side of things, I would give a shout-out to a gentleman named Joe Smith. Joe and I umpired together back in the late 80s and into the 90s. He was a good umpire at the time, was in the national program. He did the 97 Canada Games. As with a lot of people, Joe got out of, of um, umpiring due to family, then got back into it in the last few years, uh, his son showed an interest in doing some umpiring after playing or while playing, and Joe got back into it, and now he is the umpire coordinator for Baseball Regina. He's the Zone 2 umpire director. He is uh, so organized and so ready to help young people and give them opportunity that, to me, he's right now one of our most influential umpire people in the city of Regina, if not the most influential. I, I text with him periodically. Uh, we talk about setting up plans for progression of umpires. We talk about uh, trying to give opportunities to people as they move forward. And Joe's always got names ready to go and always ready to think of things to, to make umpiring better and to give umpires more and better opportunities. Definitely, the, the, probably the most influential guy 
I think, in the baseball Regina scene. It's people like Joe Smith that make the game great and fun to be around and enjoyable for the kids and for umpires and everyone in between. So, Joe Smith, thank you for all your work, and thank you for being a local legend. Well, Elmer, that essentially concludes this episode of The Leading Edge. I'd like to thank you for coming on and giving us some time and sharing with us some of your fantastic stories from over the years. Now, one of the things we like to do before we leave is give the guests the opportunity to part with what we call wise words of wisdom and essentially tips for up-and-coming umpires. So, Elmer, what are your wise words of wisdom? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me, Phil. I, I really appreciate it. It's uh, This is a very cool thing you do. It's something that, you know, we need to tell our stories to people, not because we want to pump our tires, but I think we want to tell people what can be out there if this is something that interests you and you have an aptitude towards and want to become part of. And so I tell a lot of our younger people that baseball, if you love the game, baseball has so many interesting opportunities. I've umpired in nine of the 10 provinces. I've umpired in, in about four or five different states. And I've umpired in Japan. I've met people from all over who I stay in touch with, you know, through Facebook. Every spring I see about 10, 12, 14 umpires from Midwest U.S. that we get together in Tucson for, for some college games. It is such a neat and interesting thing to come across people with that kind of experience. And if you want to learn more about officiating baseball, what better way than to get rid of the, into this program, progress through the levels, and come across some interesting experts in whatever games that they're doing, whether it's at U12 or well, U13 or U11, whatever it is, these guys are great umpires and everybody will be able to give you something to help you with your toolbox of things to better manage a game. And, you know, guys like Ron Shuchek, we talked about, what a fantastic umpire, what a great resource. Andrew Higgins that, you know, that I've worked a lot with. Uh, Larry Schrader over the years taught me how, how to be decent with people. Talking to you about, about off-field things. Uh, Rocky Nickel did a lot of administration over the years. There's so many different things we can do to improve the umpiring fraternity, both on the field and off the field. And I'd like to tell people, if it's something you find interests you, go for it. There are so many rewards to it, and I've been very fortunate uh, to receive a lot of rewards from it. And I hope that the little things that I do here in Regina can will give back to those and give opportunities for others. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode where we bring on an umpire who started working baseball in Nova Scotia has worked various Baseball Canada National Championships and currently has his sights set on Major League Baseball, working minor league affiliated baseball, and like every Nova Scotian, probably has a story about being served by either Nathan McKinnon or Sidney Crosby at his local Tim Hortons, Andrew Laurie. Now before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe the batter is out if a bunted ball hits the ground and bounces back up and hits the bat while the batter is still holding the bat in the batter's box. Our question is, what is the call if this happens during batting practice? Take care, everybody, and stay safe. <laughs>